Father, all week long, I have been praying for a revelation of truth. I've not asked you to help me preach well, although I certainly want that. But I have been asking for you to help us listen well. Help us to wrap our heads around truth, most of which we already know, so that we can be energized to move to another level in you. That's what this year is about. We want to move to another level so that we face well the things that are ahead. So again, as Elijah prayed on Carmel, I, I, I am no Elijah and this day is not a day of such consequences, that one perhaps. But there are decisions to be made, there's truth to be embraced, and we ask you to help us for your glory and in your name we ask it, amen. I want to continue where we were last week. I told you that I needed two weeks to try to communicate everything that God had put in my heart. I've been talking to you about this idea of, under, uh, of pivoting toward heaven. And so today I want to do the, basically the conclusion of understanding the pivot toward heaven. I think of what the psalmist wrote it's been on my mind for a couple of weeks. He said, you pulled my feet out of the miry clay and established my going. Um, I always wondered as a kid, why do they call it quicksand? Because every Tarzan movie, you know, it's very slow. And I had a professor one time to say that they call it quicksand not because it's fast, but because the old English word quick meant alive, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And he said that explorers called it quicksand because they said it's almost like it's alive, like there's something supernatural about it, that once it gets you, it doesn't let go of you. I've been in quicksand, thought I was not coming out of quicksand. Of course, it wasn't really quicksand, it was mud in Texas. <laughs> but the principle was the same. You see, let me say this before I tell you my story. The enemy wants to wrap good people. We know the scripture. We know that God is faithful. I'm not here fussing at you because you don't know something. Most of us are educated far beyond what we obey. I mean, I mean, all of us, we know more than we ever put into practice. So I'm not fussing that we don't know. I'm not standing here trying to get something in your head that's not there. I'm asking the Lord to help us understand the nature of what goes on sometimes. The enemy wants to wrap us in disgust so that we have our feet in the mire of despair. He wants us to forget how the battle is fought and how the battle is won. I told you about um, my deliverance that the Lord gave me in 1988 out in Fort Worth, the James Robinson Bible Conference. They had another conference the next year in 89. Then they, then they had a reunion conference in 1994, and I wanted to go to that. I didn't want to miss that. And so I went, and it was at a different place. It was in Arlington, Texas, looking out 
the window there at the convention center, um, I could see the brand new Rangers baseball stadium. Um, and then just beyond it, I could see the old one that had been demolished. Well, I am very nostalgic. And as I get older, some of my things that I thought were great trophies, I'm getting rid of because I realized that, you know, you got to get rid of stuff to make room for the grandkids pictures. But I, I have a brick from the old Yankee stadium that I got. I got a brick from the old Boston garden when they tore it down. I've got three or four bricks that I use as bookends because those things are so significant to my childhood. And there, the Texas Rangers Stadium was just demolished. They hadn't cleaned out anything. I said, it's within walking distance. I said, I'm going to get a brick and add to my collection. Now, it was in 1994, just months before I came here as pastor. I had flown to Arlington and rented a car, but there was a tram that went from the hotel where I was staying to the conference center. And this day I said, well, I'm going to save $10 parking for the church. I'm going to just ride the tram. So I rode the tram and um, I'm trying, I'm also in that phase in my life where I'm trying to learn to pack lighter. So I have one pair of shoes. How many pairs of shoes do you need? So I had one pair of shoes and during the break, I started walking from the conference center. I walked past the new stadium, thought, boy, and that stadium's built like the old ballparks. I just loved it. And I went over into uh, um, the, the demolition area of the old stadium. Now, they had signs up. It says, warning, do not trespass. But I took that like some of you take speed signs. I just thought it was a suggestion. So I climb over some stuff and I get out there and I say, I'm going to get a brick and I'm looking around. I mean, and the demolishing was so thorough. There were very few whole bricks and I find one and I go and I step to pick it up and my right foot from the ball of my foot to my knee sinks down. And I said, well, I can go to a store, buy a new pair of pants. I won't have to explain to Ramona. We'll be fine. So I grab my brick and I try to lift my leg out and it won't move. So I am, I am saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm young, I'm strong. I can get out of this. No, I can't. It's pulling me down. It's, it's, it's past my knee and it's approaching my crotch and it's pulling me deeper. And uh, I said, Lord, you know, you, you got to help me here. <laughs> well, he did. I got out. But I want to tell you, my shoe remained. <laughs> so I am about, oh, I don't know. It's been so long. I would guess half, three quarters of a mile from the convention center. I pull my leg out finally. My sock is half off. I pull it up. And it's at that point I make a decision. I would look more normal walking with one shoe than with no shoes. I, had, I tried to get the shoe out. I couldn't do it. Took, you know, I took my shirt off so I wouldn't get it. And so there's a guy that for all they know is naked out there playing in the mud. 
can't find my shoe. I get dirty water to wash my arm off. And so I start back to the convention center. I get to the convention center. I wait for my tram to my hotel to show up. And I'm muddy now from here down, just covered, one shoe. And uh, the guy looks at me. Everybody's looking at me. Uh, And I tell them which hotel I'm at. They take me back to the hotel. All the way back, I said, I don't think I brought two shoes. I don't think I've got another pair of shoes. I know I got other pants, but I don't have another pair of shoes. Got there, no other shoes. So I changed pants. I get my car keys for the rental. I ask where a mall is, and I drive to the mall. I go into this ritzy place because I didn't have a lot of choices. I didn't want to buy shoes from, you know, Shoes or Us or whatever. And so I walked into this nice place, walking with one shoe. And this guy looks at me and says, can I help you, sir? And I said, yeah, I need to buy some shoes. And in this fake aristocratic accent, he says, and will sir be purchasing one shoe today or two? And I said, it depends on what kind of salesman you are. (laughs) I bought my shoes. I felt so bad because there was, it was, it was a kind of a rough part of town and some homeless guys wanted some donations. And I don't, I can't worry about the homeless. I got to find a shoe. So I bought a pair of shoes for me. I bought a pair of shoes for this homeless guy, guessed his size. And uh, uh, the guy said, shall I wrap them? I said, no, I think I'll wear them out, you know. <laughs> I went out, gave the shoes to the homeless guy. I get back to the hotel. And, uh, you know, all, all that day I realized I've got a sore foot, I've got a sore back. Uh, because I've been walking out of balance. And the reason I've been walking out of balance is because I got into some miry clay. And loved ones, it, it ended okay for me. I got a new pair of shoes out of it, but was very humiliated. And as I was leaving, oh, the guy says, and by the way, sir, what happens in Texas stays in Texas. said, okay. And I've laughed about it a lot. I've told it as a joke on myself a lot. But I want to tell you, getting that seven miles from the stadium back to the hotel to get shoes, it was very awkward. It was very uncomfortable. And now hear me. I want you to hear me today. That's where a lot of us are living our Christianity. We we don't realize that we've chosen an environment of miry clay with the rain. Can you hear me okay? Hear me okay? We've chosen an environment and we've chosen to act just like I did. It's perfectly normal to walk and get on a bus with mud up to the mid-thigh and only one shoe. I mean, the whole world lives like that. And you know, the sad thing is that most of the world does live like that. Most of us 
are Christians who love the Lord, but there is so much dysfunction in our life. And I want you to listen to me today, please. The problem is not that Christianity doesn't work. I'm using myself as an example. The problem is that we gauge our Christianity by whether or not God or how much God is doing what we want Him to do for us. And that's normal. Everybody would choose comfort over discomfort. Everybody would choose function over dysfunction, or at least you would think so. But loved ones, I want to tell you that one of the things that I think God is trying to rid from His church, He's not trying to rid the church of you. He's not trying to rid the church of me, thank God. But He's trying to take out of us the things that get our shoes stuck in the mud. He's trying to get out of us a contentment of taking seven-mile journeys covered with mud and doing our best to act as though it's normal. He wants to set us free. You are forgiven and you are going to heaven. That's what we need to rejoice in. I don't want you to be raised. I don't want our children to be raised growing up in an environment where they never know for sure if they're going to heaven or not. Where they never know for sure if Jesus comes at any given moment that they might be left behind because they're not perfect. We need to know that our sins have been forgiven through Christ Jesus. We need to know that we have passed we have passed, not we're going to, we have passed from death into life. We need to know that whoever has the Son has life. We need to know that not everybody accepts Jesus, but those who do. To those, uh, the, the, John put it this way, he came into his own and his own received him not, but as many as did receive him. To them, he gave the power to become the children of God. And that phrase, the power to become the children of God, doesn't mean He taps them with a magic wand and makes them this instead of this. Oh, it's much more wonderful than that. He has made a decree over our very existence and over our very um, core being. We are not what we used to be. We are something else altogether different. And we are going to heaven. And I don't want you fighting that battle, wondering if, if I'm going to make it. I remember when I had a bad day, I remember, I don't know how many times, walking into my mama's bedroom at night, creeping in there quietly <coughs> to be sure my mother was breathing. Because if she was breathing, that meant she was still there. And if she was still there, that meant I hadn't missed the rapture. And I believe that. I lived in such incredible fear that any lack of perfection would rob me of my salvation. And, and that is not true. That's not the way it works. Now, we ought to do everything in our power to live the way we he, he wants us to live. We read it last week. Everyone that has this hope of heaven purifies himself even as he is pure. But loved ones, you don't get saved by grace and then stay saved by works. It's all by grace. And when we get that, we seem to think, well, I understand it. But I think there's another step that's vitally important. 
We need to understand that God wants to lift us out of that miry clay. He doesn't want our testimony to be of going from one pit to another. Now, he'll, he'll bail us out if we're in a pit every other day. That's why the psalmist said, say to my soul, I am your help. We all get to the place where even though we know it up here, we need to hear him say it down here. I am your help and I will help you. And that's where I think he's trying to navigate us from. You have in your notes, and I gave you a lot because I didn't know which way I was going to go with it. First John 3, 1 through 3. See how very much the Father loves us, for he calls us his children. And that is what we are. The people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. Dear friends, we are already God's children. But he has not yet shown us what we shall be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. I quoted my pastor from my Bible, a sermon he preached in 1970. We have all been warned about being so heavenly minded, we are of no earthly good. But loved ones, I believe there are a lot more of us who are so earthly minded that we are of no heavenly good. That is where our attention ought to turn. This world and all its troubles and trials as well as its treasures are going to pass into nothing. What will be important to us when we see him? What is it that we have loved and cherished? Last week we talked about there being an epidemic of hopelessness. We talked about how, and forgive me, I'm just giving you a drink from a fire hydrant here. Um, it seems that many of God's people have caved into anger, anxiety, or arrogance. It seems that that's run amuck in the church. Either people are angry, we're angry at what the world is doing, we're angry at the sin that's taking place. We read headlines about Afghanistan and we get furious. We've either caved into anger or we've caved into anxiety where we think that God may just lose this battle. And, and we, or, or we've caved into arrogance where if you don't believe what I believe, if you don't prophesy what I prophesy, if you don't belong to what I belong, you're not right. You may not even be a Christian. And anger and anxiety and arrogance is what is keeping most Christians from becoming what God wants them to be in this most difficult time. I'm thankful for the work of God among us, but we need to realize that God is doing a purifying work in us. And Jesus prays for us just as he did for Peter. I prayed for you that your faith doesn't fail. <coughs> John 10.10 10 reminds us that Jesus' intent for us is to have abundant life. And loved ones, I'm going to say this one more time, and, I, and, and you've got to understand, I'm speaking to a very large audience right now when I say this. But if I've heard it once, I've heard it 15, 20 times. I've just put Jesus on hold because I'm mad with him right now. And it's as though we're doing Jesus a favor. I'll serve him again when he straightens up. I'll serve him when he starts doing what he ought to be doing and we never understand. We know it. We teach it. We quote the memory verse, but we don't understand. We are the servants, not the master. He is, 
And we need to understand that this world is not our home. And in this world, Jesus said, we will have tribulation. Now, let me go a little bit deeper here. I was reading through the Psalms this week and I said, Lord, I said, I'm, I'm struggling with heaviness and, and I'm struggling with conflict. Help me to understand. <laughs> and I, I, I was reading Psalm 119. And he said, my soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. I read that. My soul melts from heaviness. Lord, that's how I feel some days. I feel like my soul is just melting from heaviness. It's not that I'm mad with anybody. It's not that anybody has done anything or failed to do something. But heaviness just has me melted. Then I came across another one in Psalm 109. In return for my love, they have become my accusers. And I was praying about how, how easy it is for us to be disappointed by people. But I give myself to prayer. I said, Lord, these are the verses I'm talking about. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm being accused. I'm being misunderstood. I'm being ill-spoken of. And, and not, not, I'm not talking about you, but we all face that from people. And I said in the other verse, my soul melts from heaviness. Lord, that's where I'm at. Now tell me what to do. And the Lord spoke to me and said, just read the second part of the verses. I don't like an answer that simple. I want something profound. I want the Lord to say, mere mortal cannot understand what I'm about to show you. But that very, very rarely happens. What did he say in Psalm 119 verse 28? My soul melts from heaviness. Therefore, strengthen me from your word. Get into the word. In return for my love, they have become my accusers. So I have given myself to prayer. Now, loved ones, this is where I want you to really listen to me. And I'm going to say that several times. We are irritated with the Lord because we have to keep going to him in prayer. We haven't had resolution to the issues of our life. And the young and the old fight that same battle. But please hear me today. If you haven't heard me say it before, listen to me as I say it now. The only way you will get past where you are is to get into the scripture and commit your life to prayer. I don't have a magic formula. There's not a church out there. There's some that claim to there are some pastors that say, if you'll do it my way, you won't have these problems. But there is nothing I can offer you except the diligence and the devotion of intimacy with God. I don't believe it'll change if you change churches or change political parties or move to another state or buy another car. There is an issue of life that is only dealt with by our devotion to the Lord and the anchor of our devotion to the Lord is our prayer in the scriptures. This is what Jonathan Swift said. I don't, I don't, I don't think I put this in your notes, <coughs> but I'll try to get it for you. Jonathan Swift, over 300 years ago, warned us about the effect of not guarding our heart against lies and faulty reasoning. Here's another place I want you to listen. You've heard me say it, but I want you to listen. You see, it's one thing to have a battle, but it's another thing to give the priority of your attention to faulty thinking. 
Do you know what most Christians do? Boy, you're so quiet today. Do you know what most Christians do? Most Christians give room to faulty thinking and they let it rape and ravage their spirit and their soul. And then they get over it and say, well, I know better. But they don't understand what's been done to them in the process. They say, I'm over it. You're not over it. You just feel better. And you're not over it because the next time trouble comes, you, you revert right back to the same anger, the same frustration, the same accusation, the same arrogance. You don't listen to counsel. You don't listen to wisdom. You don't listen to people that have lived longer than you and walk further down the path of spirituality than you have. You go right back to the same old reaction and you don't understand that you never got over it the last time. You just felt better but you let it live at home. Okay, this is what Jonathan Swift said. As the vilest writer has his readers, so the greatest liar has his believers. Is that in your notes? Okay, I'll get that for you. As the vilest writer has his readers, so the greatest liar has his believers. And it often happens that if a lie be believed for only an hour, it has done its work and there is no farther occasion for it. In such cases, falsehood flies and truth comes limping after it. And sometimes when men come to be undeceived, it's too late and the tale has had its effect. Now, Jonathan Swift wasn't saying that there's damage that can't be undone or the enemy wins and there's nothing God can do about it. <coughs> but this is what Swift was saying. He says, if you don't learn to deal with those lies when they come, you may only embrace them for an hour. And you may say, well, I shouldn't have thought that. I should have done that. And God, grace covers, grace forgives. But what Smith uh, uh, Swift is saying is this, there's the danger if you keep investing in an hour of that here and an hour of that there and a moment of that here and a moment of that there, it's possible that it will do its damage in a short period of time. And even at the end of the day, when you say it's not true, you still let it sink it hooks, its hooks into your soul. Loved ones, we have got to learn, all of us, have got to learn to take thoughts captive, as Paul said, and bring them to the obedience of Christ. And we've made that so flippant. We've made it just a cute little rebuke and formula. And, and um, you know, I rebuke you for saying that, brother. And, you know, a lot of times I just tell people, I'm, I'm not going to be rebuked. You, I, save your rebuke. We, we, we don't understand the power of it. But we do need to understand that when that despair comes, and the despair may be demonic, the despair may be carnal, it may be that that's just been the way you've, raised, you've been raised. It may be that you're acting the way your mama acted, or the way your daddy acted. You ever heard somebody say, well, she's just her mother's daughter? He's his father's son. Sometimes this kind of embracing of lies and, and despair is absolutely demonic. It's a demonic attack. 
sometimes, sometimes, sometimes it is just the flesh acting out of what we've been all of our life and we feed it and we feed it and we feed it. Sometimes it's, it's um, neither demonic nor is it necessarily the flesh. Sometimes it's just we, we act on wrong information. Sometimes we have wrong expectations. If God loved me, he wouldn't even let me be going through this in the first place. And loved ones, there comes a time when every young Christian, every young lady, every teenage boy, every grandma and grandpa has got to come to the grips where you deal with that. And you no longer let that thing, you know, I, I, I hear it from my age group till I, I despair at times. Well, I've just reached the point I just don't care what people think anymore. I know, and that's a sin. Our, our res, the response portion of our brain begins to shrivel and shrink and we think we're getting holy boldness. Now you're getting old. The, the, the Greek term for it is oldicus farticus. And I'm here to tell you, loved ones, we need to stop blaming our life length for the length of our carnality. And teenagers and younger, young need to understand there is more wisdom that comes out of years than you'll ever get out of a book. And we've got to learn to bring thoughts under control. We've got to learn as the man who brought the demon-possessed child to Jesus did. Are you guys still with me? Good. You've got to, you've got to, to understand that there's nothing wrong in fact, it opens the door to victory when your despair is so deep and your confusion is so profound and your defeat is so complete that you just say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. We have instead decided to deconstruct Christianity. And we have decided to deconstruct doctrine. We've decided to deconstruct Christian uh, civility. And we're saying the Bible doesn't mean this. Doctrine doesn't mean this. Theology doesn't mean this. It means this. And what you are doing uh, is building hope on a wrong foundation. You're taking away the only foundation that we have. And you're building a house on sand. There's nothing wrong with saying, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. When you have problems with your job, you cannot overcome. When you have problems with your marriage that you cannot overcome. When you have prayed and asked for something and it still has not come week after week after week, month after month after month, year after year after year. There's nothing wrong with saying, Lord, I believe, but I am struggling. There's nothing wrong with saying, Lord, I know that you're true, but I am weak. I am frail. We used to sing a song that says, Jesus never fails. Jesus never fails. Heaven and earth may pass away, but Jesus never fails. But part of that song said this, you've never failed me, though I failed you. Oh, that's I'm trusting you, Lord. I'm blending two songs together. Oh, my brain's shrinking. But it's the truth. We need to come to the place where 
if things don't go, we've got to listen. And this is not popular. And it is spoken, it, this teaching is taught away by the prosperity teachers. But there comes a time where you have to say, if there's no corn in the crib, if there's no cattle in the stall, if there are no figs on the tree and no fruit on the vine, I still will belong to God and I still will trust Him. And that is lost in this culture. That is lost in this culture. People will change cars because a tire goes flat. People will change wives because she burns the toast. And people will alter religion searching for a brand of Christianity that somehow takes away from them any inconvenience or difficulty. Corey, do, I don't know. We just bought the property. I was going to throw this over, but it may break. I don't know if we got money to buy a new one right now. Never mind. We'll save that for another time. At least I'm in control. Let me tell you, loved ones, and I know I hurt for you. I hurt for me. We're all going through a tough time. We all face difficulties. Even in the best of times, we have these moments of doubt and despair and why me and how long, oh Lord. You read the Psalms and you see it over and over again. Why? 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 And then the really deep ones go, why me? Why me? Why me? How long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? Have you turned your face on us? Have you forgotten us forever? <coughs> I challenge you, loved ones, get, you ought to read the book of Psalms every month. Ten minutes a day. You can read five Psalms a day. And you can get a full plethora of human emotion. That's the value of the Psalms. The Psalms show you men and women of God in worship in every phase of life. Boy, we need to learn that. Don't cave in to fear. Don't cave in to fatalism. Don't cave in to... Um, uh, the idea of futility. Okay, last week we said we're created to be specially loved. We're creatures with an eternal destiny. We're crafted with a heavenly design and we're citizens of another kingdom. Now let me give you three points to wrap this up. How do I, how do I live it out? How do I understand how to pivot toward, the, toward heaven? Pastor, how do I go from this vicious cycle I'm in how do I go from this vicious cycle I'm in into getting my feet out of the miry clay? I had a friend, and I will never mention their name, but I still got permission to say what I'm going to say. They don't go to this church because I just, confidentiality is such a big thing. I said, I won't mention your name, your state, anything about it, but I'd like to share this. And they said, I wish you would. This person is... Uh, I, I, they gave me the long official medical term, but we would call them manic behavior. And, and um, uh, essentially, it's a form of being bipolar. They love the Lord with all of their heart. I've never seen anybody more giving and more gracious, but they go through this cycle 
they go through this cycle. I've seen them go through this cycle for decades now. And they do fine. They're very loving. They become irritable. They become hostile. And then they are out of control. They're dangerous. And then they'll come back around and start it all over again. And I asked them one time, I said, what, what's causing this? And they said, well, I'm broken and I'm struggling with this diagnosis. This is how it affects me. They give me medicine to help me manage it. But I get tired of taking the medicine, so I leave the medicine off, and then I become dangerous. Then I hurt people. Then I hurt myself. And I'll realize what I've got to do, and I'll start my medicine again. And with tears in his eyes, he said, I've been in this cycle all of my adult life. Now, this isn't about bipolar disorder. This isn't about mental illness. This isn't about taking medicine. I'm talking about your spirituality. I think some of us are, if such a thing exists, we struggle with a spiritual bipolar disorder. We know that God calls us to Scripture. We know God calls us to prayer. We know God calls us to the fellowship of the church. But we get tired of it and we say there's nothing wrong with me. And then we go back to living the old way. And I know this analogy breaks down. So please, medical people, don't send me a letter. I know it's a faulty I know it's a faulty analogy, but it's the closest thing I can come to. The point I'm trying to make, my friend, when he stops following the procedure, he goes very, very bad. But if he does what he's supposed to do, it keeps him on track. And I'm telling you that we as Christians have got to learn a new kind of behavior because you leave people eviscerated by your lashing out. You leave your own soul scarred by, by believing the lie, even if you only believe it for an hour. We must learn to bring thoughts captive, and it's possible because it's the commandment of Paul the Apostle for every child of God. Let me tell you the three things that I wanted to tell you about it. This transformation takes place, number one, when we understand the presence of the Spirit infilling in our lives. It is not by might, it is not by power, but it is by my Spirit, says the Lord. Paul gives two special commands for Christians who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Number one, he says, don't grieve the Spirit, and number two, don't quench the Spirit. Now, grieve is a love word. It, 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 you, you know, my car cannot grieve me. It can anger me. I may shoot it. I may trade it. But I, I never get grieved over a vehicle. I never put my arms on the hood of a car and cry and say, why hast thou dealt with me thusly? No, it's a machine. That doesn't grieve me, but my children can grieve me. My wife can grieve me. My church can grieve me. My friends can grieve me. And that can happen. All of us, <coughs> when we're grieved, it comes from people that we love because grieve is a love word. And we need to understand in our walk with the Spirit, we must strive 
to live life in a way that we don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Now quench, and, and they're interchangeable, but quench basically is more an idea of shutting down. You know, you don't shut down the work of the Spirit. You know, somebody says, let me pray with you. And you, you may close your eyes, but you don't pray. That's quenching the Holy Spirit. You're saying, I'll let you pray, but I'm not interested in the prayer. Or I'll, you know, go to this doctor. Well, I'll go to the doctor, but I'm not interested in what he's going to say. Grieve not, quench not. R.T. Kendall wrote a book called Pigeon Religion. And, and um, R.T. based that book on the premise, uh, or, or the story rather, where Jesus was being baptized. And the Lord told John the Baptist, the one upon whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. That's the Messiah. And the idea was that the Spirit came on Jesus and remained. Now, R.T. makes the case that Jesus lived a life that never quenched the Spirit, never grieved the Spirit. He remained. Uh, but we don't live that way, so we are constantly chasing the dove of the Spirit away. I know what R.T. is saying, and if you read his book, he's, he says the same thing. But this life with the Holy Spirit is not a matter of us offending him and he's so fidgety that he flies off every time we do something wrong. And that's not what RT is saying. But if we're not careful, we'll develop the mindset that we lose our assurance when we grieve the Holy Spirit. And that ought not to be. That ought not to be. And RT doesn't say that. Pigeon Religion is a book you need to read from front to ending to answer your questions. But loved ones, I do know this. We must return to the place. I know you're getting tired, so I'm going to quit here in just a minute um, because we've had a lot going on today. But we must return to the place where we honor the presence of the Holy Spirit and we pay attention to conviction and we pay attention to conscience and we pay attention to the idea that everything we say, the way I speak to my wife, the Holy Spirit will sit in judgment on it. The way I withhold what needs to be given, the Holy Spirit sits in judgment on it. Loved ones, let me just put it this way. You cannot manhandle these lies. You cannot manhandle the attack of the enemy. You are not strong enough. I am not strong enough. We must allow the Spirit to rise up in us. You say, well, how do I do that? Do this. Spirit, rise up in me. Holy Spirit, help me right now. Instead of just vomiting the anger, vomiting out the wrath, vomiting out the rage, we've got to learn to appeal to the Holy Spirit. And this is kindergarten preaching, but we've forgotten it. We must go back to the idea of the presence of the Spirit's filling. Number two, we must get a vision of Spirit focus. We must get our eyes on something besides the person that just heard us. We must get our eyes on something besides the bad news that was in the doctor's report. We've got to get our mind on something besides frustration at work. This is how we do it. In Hebrews 12, it speaks of Jesus and it says this, He endured the cross and despised the shame. Do you know that you can endure something and hate it all at the same time? But you have to have your eyes on something else. 
it speaks of Jesus. It says, who for the joy set before him. That's us. That's me. That's you. That's every man, woman, boy, and girl. Every member of Adam's race, Jesus had his focus on us. He had his focus on us. And because he had his focus on the joy that was set before them, him, he could endure the shame, endure the cross, but despise the shame. I've said this before, you that are parents know, you, you'll, 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 fight a, you'll fight a circle saw to protect your child. You, you'll go up against a grizzly bear with no gloves to defend your child. When you love somebody, your wife, your husband, there's nothing that's too big for you to go up against because I'm protecting them. I'm loving them. I'm serving them. Are you, are you with me? We've got to get our focus on whatever the Spirit wants us to focus on. You'll go through any trial if your eyes are on the right thing. You'll go through any difficulty if your eyes are on the right thing. You'll stand up to any enemy if your eyes are on the right target. So I've got to, number one, I've got to be full of the Spirit. I've got to realize that I will inevitably go wrong unless I have the Spirit's fooling. I need to, number two, realize that I must be focused on something higher than this world. Loved ones, you, you, I know we get upset over the news, but your eyes have got to be on something besides Washington. I know we get upset over wicked people, but our eyes must not be on wicked people. Our eyes must be on something else. Let me ask you this question before we wrap it up. Are you angry with the circumstances you face? And worse yet, are you angry with God? I, I know that you're a Christian and you're going to heaven. You might not feel like it right now. But you're going to heaven if you're a child of God. But have you allowed circumstances to make you angry with God? Do you find rage and indignation coming to your mouth, anger and resentment making home in your heart? What's the last thing? I have to partner together hope and worship. Do you realize, loved ones, stay with me one more time. Do you realize that if the enemy can silence your worship, everything else is silent too? One of my other Psalms where I said, Lord, we just feel so hopeless. I found another one, Psalm 71. As for me, I will always have hope, Lord. I'm going to claim that verse. I'm going to claim that verse. I'm going to always have hope. Oh, I'm going to always have hope. But there again, I have to finish the verse. I will praise you more and more. You want to hold on to your hope? Do you want to hold on to your hope for that wayward child? Do you want to hold on to your hope for that broken marriage? Do you want to hold on to your hope for a career? Do you want to hold on to your hopes for marriage? Do you want to hold on to your hopes for your life turning out according to what you felt like was the call of God? Yes, I do, but I'm getting so stinking tired of it. You only have one thing you can do. Praise more and more. 
praise more and more. And I'm not talking about a silly Colgate grin and just ignoring realities. Faith never ignores realities, but faith sees beyond realities. I love Leah. I tell you, Leah had one of the most unfortunate things happen to her. She was married to a man that loved another woman more than he loved her. Now, it was her sister, and she was also the man's wife. But the Bible says that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. But God always takes note of those disappointments. And this is what the Bible says. When the Lord saw that Jacob loved this wife more than the other one, He opened Leah's womb and shut Rachel's. See, God, hear me, God will make you absolutely miserable until you begin to get the balance of life right. God doesn't mind you being humiliated with mud on your pants and a sock that squishes and a need to go in one shoe to a mall and buy a pair of shoes if that's what it takes to get you back in balance. You see, this is what happened. She knew, every woman knows when she's not loved. And she was not loved. Men don't seem to have problems having sex with women. They just seem to have trouble loving women the way they ought to in situations like this. So she ended up pregnant. She had a son named him Reuben and says, God has seen my affliction. Now my husband will love me because I've given him a son. But that didn't work. She had another son named him Simeon. And she said, God has given me Simeon because he sees I'm unloved. Well, Jacob didn't change. Then she had a third son, Levi. Now, now with this third son, Levi, my husband will be attached to me at last. I have given him three sons. Now I'll have his love. But nothing she did, nothing she imagined, nothing she configured made her husband love her anymore. And she ends up pregnant again. She has another boy. But this is what she does. She names him Judah because Judah sounds like the Hebrew word for praise. This is what she said. She said, this time, I'm just going to praise the Lord. This time, I'm just going to praise the Lord. Loved ones, your hope will continue to diminish by circumstance after circumstance until you decide that I am going to open my soul to him for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to focus my thoughts on something besides my dis dysfunction and I'm going to open my mouth to him. This time I will praise the Lord. I, I wish I had a witty ending. I wish I had some wonderful things to say to call this service to a close. But the fact is, loved ones, I have nothing else to offer you. I can't offer you 27 steps to getting anything you want from God. I can't say if you'll pray and say this, 
that all of your problems will go away. Some of you have problems that I can't point to Scripture and say, here's a verse that God says, I will take care of this and I'll make it right. Some of you are facing problems. There is no guarantee in Scripture. Some of you are asking for things that I can agree with you for, I'm praying with you for. I try to make a list of things that people say, please pray with me about this, Papa. Pray with me about this. And I'm overwhelmed by it sometimes. Not, not that your needs are overwhelming, but I just, God, you ought to do this. You ought to do this. <laughs> and sometimes all I can say is, Lord, just give them what they need. Give them what they want because I want it for you so badly. But I can't give a promise that it's going to happen. So what do I do, Pastor? You decide. And this is one only you can make. You decide, this time I'll praise the Lord. I'll praise Him. You see, because pastor can't be everything you need. Your parents can't be everything you need. Your siblings can't be everything that you need. Your spouse can't be everything that you need. You will come to a point in life where the only realistic option you've got is I'm gonna, I'm gonna love the Lord. I'm gonna move in close. I'm gonna move in close. I'm gonna move in close. I don't mean to embarrass my wife. I should have gotten permission from her to say this, but we've been together, um, yeah, this year is 42 years. That's a long time for a man to have to work on a woman. Did I say man on a woman? No, I meant woman on man. During those 42 years, there's probably been about three times that we thought we were at the end and had no recourse just didn't I don't mean what in our marriage I mean facing something fighting something battling something and I'm so thankful I thought about this the other day all three of those times where we thought we have no place else to turn the thing that we did was the same thing all three times when we realized we have nowhere else to turn nobody can help us every time this is what we did we just moved in close and held each other so tight that we almost couldn't breathe. I say, well, what did that do? Did it unloose some magical key? It was a way of saying, I'm with you. And if we go down, we go down together. I love you. And no matter what else happens around us, we have each other. And loved ones, I, I want you to know that we need to learn to do that with the Lord. We need to learn to say, this time I will praise the Lord. I, I'm not going to tell you to have a positive confession and God will meet your need within 30 days. I don't know. He can. He can meet your need before the day is over. But I know this, there's a lot better chance of that hopeless need in your life being met by you drawing close to the Lord and smothering yourself in, him, in His embrace than it is by putting Him on hold, than it is by lashing out at those around you. I, I, I know there are people that want to help and they're not helping. But learn the lesson of Leah. This time I will praise the Lord. You say... Did it ever get right for her? Did her husband ever love her like he did Rachel? 
I don't know, we only have little clues, but I know this, when it came time for Jacob to be buried, he chose to be buried next to Leah instead of Rachel. That was his choice. And I can't prove it from Scripture, and some say, oh, it was just logistical. No, look at the miles they covered. A little further journey wouldn't have been a problem. I think it was Jacob's way of saying, this woman has not been treated right. Life has not been kind to her the way it should have been. I am going to do all I can do. This is all I have left to do to show her that she is loved and that she is of more value than she thought. Bury me next to Leah. You say, Pastor, so what you're telling me is that it may be when I'm old and gray or dead before God comes through. Maybe. God still hasn't come through on some of my stuff. And I know you won't believe this, but I'm getting old. I'm getting more and more gray. And it still hadn't come to pass. But I don't blame my children. I don't blame my wife. I don't blame the church. What do you, who do you blame? Oh, there's enough mess in me. I probably could just blame myself, but I've quit the blame game as much as I can. I just keep running to the lap of Jesus. I say, Lord, get me home before dark. Don't let me live too long. Don't let me live too short. Don't let me become a bitter old man. But Lord, help me to live every day of my life in your presence, in your love. Lord, we need to get straight. Father, I'm not out of time. The guy that made all those announcements before me took all my time. Help us. Because some of us have got some battles ahead of us and if you don't come through for us, we don't know what we're going to do. Lord, I don't know what we're going to do if you don't come through for us. So Lord, I want to say, fill me, Holy Spirit. I want to say, give me something to focus my eyes upon so that even when I'm going through the cross, I can despise the shame but not lose hope. Help me to learn afresh and anew the secret of praising God.